Hey, podcast listeners. Welcome to the Vital Course Salon. This is the virtual lounge for frazzled type A's, imposters, and overscheduling addicts. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Martin-Snyder. And each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman who's not letting bullshit or burnout slow her down. Whew! It's almost Valentine's Day. And some of you might be counting your chocolate hearts or planning your romantic dinner for two or wanting to hide under the bed. But this is a particularly funky time of year for me. Here's why. I know from clinical experience of working with frazzled type A women for the last seven years and also what the research around making change looks like is that by Valentine's Day, about half of the people that have made New Year's resolutions have already bombed. And that is incredibly heartbreaking to someone like me who really enjoys helping women get their shit together in a way that doesn't feel terrible, in a way that can feel playful and intentional and sustainable. If you're someone who really hoped on New Year's that you were going to totally get your shit together this year, and now you're kind of floundering, if that's you, we should connect and see if a smart start session is a good fit for you. And we can start that process, and it's really easy. You can go to my website, vitalcorpswellness.com, hit contact at the top of the page. You'll answer a couple questions that'll flow right into my inbox. And from there, we can begin the conversation and find a good time to talk and see where you are in the process and if what I provide for service is what you need. Today, I'm so excited to have my friend Jamie Lee here. She's a self-described pragmatic negotiation geek and consultant for She Negotiates. So she literally helps, especially women, negotiate for what they're worth and make more gutsy asks in their career. And that has led to her literally bringing thousands of dollars into all of these different women's households. And so she's going to talk about negotiation. She's going to share some of her resources. We're going to talk about public speaking. And we're also going to talk about fear. She's made some transitions in her life. And we also talk about money, the attitudes towards money and and what it represents for us. So the conversation kind of goes all over, but it is just a delight to talk to her. And so I invite you all to check out our conversation. Now here's Jamie and I. Hey, Jamie, how are you? Welcome to the Vital Core Salon. I'm so happy to be here. Yay, I'm glad you could make it. Thanks for having me. So for the listeners, you know, I just want to give them a little backstory You and I met when you took my job as I was leaving my last job in finance at Tipping Point in New York. And it was it was sort of funny, like rarely do you leave a job and you end up staying on to train someone. But it was a really fortunate experience because I got to meet you in the process. And these days you've you've transitioned yourself from doing work in finance to becoming a she negotiates consultant. What does that look like now? And how did you make that transition? What it looks like now is that it's a whole lot of fun. <laughs> yes. And with a person 
as a person with a background in finance, I had to run the numbers on my own business. And I was delighted to find out that my clients had a 5x return on investment. That was average number. (laughs) I love spreadsheets. You're kidding. So these are clients coming to you to have you consult on them negotiating something and you manage to get a 5x return. For them. Yes. And that's an average number. (laughs) And um, it's wonderful. What I do is I do one-on-one salary negotiation consulting. I also do long-term coaching. And I do a lot of public speaking. I do workshops, webinars. Uh, I'm doing an event with this group called Ladies Get Paid next week where I'm speaking at a town hall event and talking about how to know your worth. I'm speaking with uh, The Catalyst, which is a non-for-profit that helps women become a major force in the workplace. It's a non-for-profit that promotes diversity. So I'm doing an event with them in March on International Women's Day. So I'm having a lot of fun, and I'm so grateful and excited to see the numbers and you know, see that, yes, there is a return on investment for my clients who invest their time and money in working with me. That is fantastic. Congratulations, Jamie. Thank you. That is so cool. Can you talk a little bit about, well, let me, let me back up. So you know this about me, but I'll share it with, with those listening. When I was in finance and I negotiated on behalf of clients and other people, or I had an admin billing me out at a certain hourly rate. It was like those were just numbers and there was like no sort of emotional feeling about it. And then when I transitioned to having my own business and clients would pay me or I'd have to discuss money, something happened. And it took me the probably the first couple of years to kind of work out some of the kinks with that and just feel more confident and comfortable negotiating on behalf of myself is is my story a common story like is that what what you see a lot of out there oh absolutely I totally resonate with your story and before I go any further first I have to thank you because you are my negotiation mentor you have really inspired me you have been an active member in some of the workshops I held in New York. Uh, You gave great talks on believing in your worth and speaking up for yourself. So it's just pure delight to be here with you talking about negotiation. To answer your question, yes, women, well, I can't speak for all women. I can speak for myself and some of the women that I know personally. And I personally have negotiated on behalf of companies like you have when I worked as a buyer uh, and it was my job to negotiate with vendors and you're right it was you know it was almost like how far can I get right and there was less of a fear of rejection because there was no fear almost you just rationalized that this was your job and you're so committed to doing a good job You had less of a fear of rejection and judgment. I think the fear that we experience when we have to stick our own neck out, we have to claim our own unique value and ask to be paid, (laughs) 
or ask to be paid better is that fear. What will they think of me? Will they not like me anymore? Where do you think that comes from? Because I know in a previous episode of the show, I think it was in the conversation with Sally Eckes, we we were like, why does that happen? Like, why is it harder for women to negotiate for themselves compared to when they're negotiating for someone else? From your experience, and I know you read about this, I know you study the topic of negotiation, you are so knowledgeable on this topic. What have you seen or what have you learned? Like, what what is that from? What is that from? First of all, we live in a culture that, in America, we live in a culture that doesn't like negotiation. We associate it with being sleazy, scammy, like it's what used car salespeople do. It's, it's a chore that you have to go through when you buy a house. And at most people think it's, it's a once a year thing that you kind of have to do if you want to get a raise. Whereas in the country where I was born in South Korea and in a lot of uh, countries in the East, negotiation well, haggling to be precise, is just a way of life. It's just something that you do all the time. <laughs> do, you, do you see a difference between negotiation and haggling? Or is it just simply a, a different connotation? Same thing, different connotation. You can think of haggling as a subset of negotiation. And uh, negotiation that I teach and that is most effective in the workplace where you want to maintain, if not improve, existing relationships with people. In that context, the negotiation you really want to engage in is called integrative negotiation or win-win negotiation. And at the heart of win-win negotiation, it's all about effective communication, engaging in a conversation that could lead to agreement, and really the objective here is to engage and to connect. So yes, haggling, negotiation, different. Got it. Jamie, I want to backtrack for a second here. Talk a little bit about how you went from working in finance to now consulting with women on negotiation. Sure. So when I met you, that was five years ago, uh, when you were leaving Tipping Point Partners and I was joining Tipping Point Partners, and you were a fantastic trainer, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. I had just made my foray into the startup community. And the more I learned about the community, I learned that it, it's, it's an environment where everyone's contributions are appreciated. Everyone gives back to the community. And I thought, what is it that I can give back that I uniquely can give back. And I looked at my own work history and I had worked in finance at a hedge fund. Before that, I was a buyer. And I saw that for people like me who are startup employees, not founders, they often get offered equity as part of the compensation package. But not everyone understands how to evaluate that equity compensation. And I thought, well, maybe this is something that I can learn and teach. And so what I did was I went to 
Fred Wilson's blog. Fred Wilson is a venture capitalist here in New York, and he had this whole series called Monday MBAs where he uh, explained all these business concepts, and he did a whole series on how to evaluate startup employee equity. So I read all of that, I consumed it, I started teaching a class uh, where people can come and wrap their heads around what this equity compensation actually means and how it works. And that was great, I love that. But then I thought, wait, that's not enough. People need to know how to negotiate their compensation. And that's really the main pain point that a lot of people have because of the you know, cultural influences that we talked about. People have this aversion to the word negotiation. A lot of women have that aversion too. They say, oh no, I don't negotiate. I don't negotiate for anything. This doesn't help us because life is negotiation. We negotiate every day at school, at work, at home, our compensation, how our work is done, how we live our lives. It's a very integral, essential life skill. And I thought, how can I turn people's mindset around this negotiation? And how can I help women become more confident in negotiating? And it was really simple. Just create a safe space where people can practice. And I think, Kara, you were one of the uh, first people to really support and contribute your time and energy helping me create these workshops. And really, that was it. I wasn't really teaching framework or giving custom strategy as I do now. I just created the space and event where people come and practice. And from there, I saw people really bloom. And it was so satisfying, so gratifying to see women embrace the concept of negotiating for themselves. And I, I think the common phrase here is that from there, it was history. <laughs> yes. I mean, and for those of you listening that have never gotten to an experience an event with Jamie. I mean, some of the ones that we collaborated on, the turnout was massive. You know, there'd definitely be, I, I'm thinking of one, and it was a it was a pretty packed space. I want to say like about 30 women or so. And it was sort of, I had done a keynote, Jamie had done a keynote and sort of a teaching section. And then it was really hands-on. And it was great. I mean, you you asked me to kind of come in to talk, but also be a mentor to people negotiating. And, you know, you had mentors paired with almost every group. And just watching women bumble, like practice, like really fumbling with their words and kind of trying to get get out of the role play a little bit because it was that uncomfortable. But by the end having women feel like they could have the conversations with their boss or have a conversation with their partner about something. It was really amazing to see. And that was just in the course of like an hour and a half or so. Exactly. Yeah. And every time I do the workshop, I'm always amazed by how much women know and how much women have negotiated. People especially the women who come to my workshops, they don't give themselves enough credit for how much negotiation skill they already have. 
Absolutely. And or the hidden places of negotiation in a day. I mean, just think about like us setting up this time to talk. We had to negotiate the time. We had to negotiate some of the topics we would talk about. Like we don't think of that as negotiation, but it really is on this like teeny tiny basis. I mean, you know, on Saturday mornings, I wake up, look at my husband in bed and think, what are we going to eat today? Are we going to go to brunch? Like, we have to negotiate. Do we eat eggs? Do we eat oatmeal? Do we have a smoothie? Like, what's happening here? It's happening all around us all the time. And so exactly. one of the things, you know, one of the things I see, you know, is when, for example, my clients are having to negotiate a new exercise schedule, introducing new foods into the house, there is an element of that being scary, but when it comes to talking about money or or things in the workplace, it seems to go from like a 10 on the scary scale to like about 110. Mm. Why do you think that is? The research shows that, you know what, let's not talk about the research. First, I want to ask a question. Is that true? Is it really true? that women don't like to negotiate? From what I've seen in like seven years of doing this work, I I can't say it's all women, but it's definitely a good percentage of women. You know, and it may, it's in different spots, right? Like as I work with my clients, we're looking at like, well, what foods are working for you? You know, doing a lot of data collection, you know, like keeping a food diary for a few weeks. And then you see trends, right? Like you see, okay, every time you eat broccoli, you feel incredibly bloated and awful. (laughs) You know, like, Mm. what's going on with broccoli? Is it how you're cooking it? You know, and we dig into the weeds around like, what are these trends that I'm seeing? But when it comes time then to make a change, like in the household, Like, and especially with people that I see that are having, like, big problems with gluten or dairy, right? Like, we collect the data, and then it's very evident from their, you know, two- or three-week history. Mm -hmm. Every time you drink a glass of milk, you feel awful, you Mm -hmm. know, or you're constipated the next day. You know, what do you think? Usually my clients are like, well, maybe I should try to take it out for a little bit. And then that's usually challenging to the client themselves, but then they have to go back and tell you know, potentially a, a husband or a wife or a, or a partner, like, hey, I've got to take dairy out of my diet for a few weeks and see if this makes my symptoms go away. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes a very stressful thing, right? Because now it's this like- This happened to me. <laughs> the exact same situation happened to me. And that's one of the biggest and best life changes I ever made, which is I, I cut dairy out of my diet in 2016 because that's when I finally realized, oh, I am fully lactose intolerant. I can't take dairy. <laughs> and I've become that woman who goes to restaurants like, is there dairy in this? And then they have to take it back. And my husband, my life partner, he kind of like, he's like, are you sure? You, you, you sure you can't even take a little bit of dairy? You sure you can't even eat a little bit of frosting on a birthday cake? I'm like, yeah, I- I'm sure. Yeah, you're like, it's a no-win situation for me. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe that's kind of the the resistance to change is what you are perhaps alluding to. Yeah, and then, so not only do they have their own resistance, like, it was hard for you to probably come to that decision, right? Like, I know I had to cut gluten out because I have an autoimmune condition, and that made, like, 75% of the symptoms go away before I even saw the doctor. 
Mm -hmm. And it's a non-negotiable for me. But I know like when people have like intolerances and sensitivities, like you can be, it's not as like 100% compliance is zero compliance like it is with gluten. For people with an intolerance or sensitivity, depending on how bad the symptoms are, they can cope with little bits here and there and, and be largely okay. There's that internal resistance to change when it's you having to make the change. But then all of a sudden, like, you know, I know it was a struggle for my husband, Craig, when I had to take gluten out and, you know, we weren't going to have giant, you know, loaves of bread with a bowl of soup and things like that, that were like regular staples of our diet for a long time. And so that took a lot of negotiation. And I see mm. that over and over with my clients in terms of changes in the kitchen, just even like changes in bedtime, changes, especially when they have to negotiate a change to their work schedule. You know, I had one client, and I've seen this in, in other shades too, but I had one client who, when she had to leave for work and do the daycare drop-off, and get to the office by the time she was supposed to be there, if there was, like, any traffic, which there was, you know, probably two or three days a week, like, she was getting to work just, like, practically in tears, like, already feeling like the day was blown, you know, her boss was, like, side-eyeing her, like, it was just an incredibly uncomfortable conversation. Could we go back, could we go back to the negotiation around gluten? I, I just wonder, what does that look like? Yeah, the negotiation around gluten. Um, yeah. God, it's been so many years now. I, I don't know if I remember all the details, but it was just, I mean, I guess one of the things that made it easier in my situation was I had gotten to a place where I was so fatigued, my hair was thinning, mm. I my energy was bad, I was freezing all the time. Um, basically, I was I was functioning as hypothyroid, so underperforming mm -hmm. thyroid. And so everything in my body, metabolism, energy level, like everything was slowing down and I was shivering like even in like June. So, and you had to have a con conversation, a difficult conversation with your husband about this. Yeah, I think the fact that he had been seeing the, sem the symptoms building up made it easier where I was like, you know, everything that I'm reading, everything that I understand, you know, I had gotten, I had gotten to the point I had to wait several months to see an integrative MD. Yeah. Um, in the area. And so I had presented a huge packet. Like I had pulled together all of my health history. I had been going through things. I'd been doing the research. And I was like, based on my history, this is either some sort of effect from having Lyme disease years ago and having it pretty badly, or this is what I think is Hashimoto's, which is autoimmune version of thyroiditis. And mm. and I was sort of like in this holding pattern, right? Like feeling really rotten, f feeling the symptoms, you know, the, the fatigue, the forgetfulness. I mean, all the symptoms were there. And basically having to wait like about two and a half months to get into the doctors. I was like, well, tons of what I'm reading, you know, talk about taking gluten out. And I used to be a subscriber to Beer Advocate magazine. Like, that was my thing. Like, I, I could care less about a glass of wine, but beer was my thing. And it was partly what brought Craig and I to, together. I mean, some of our first emails when we met on Match were about which craft beer bar we were going to meet up at. So this was like a huge shift for me. Like, And, and for it, Craig. 
and for Craig because all of a sudden I wasn't going to be like super psyched about going out for beer anymore and kind of sad like at the at the time like I had a really hard time like I just I didn't want to be gluten-free so there was the internal resistance and you also there was some external resistance as well absolutely and so part of it then was like looking at there were lots of small conversations I think initially it was like I'm gonna try this and then within like three or four weeks like I I wouldn't say I was back to normal, but I went from probably like functioning at about like 30% some days to probably functioning somewhere between 70 and 80%. And this is after you cut out gluten. And this was after I finally was like, you know, I've tried some other things, but I'm just going to do this. Like, I'm really going to do it. Yeah. And when I did, the symptoms definitely dialed back and... But there were a lot of conversations, and there still are. I mean, it is challenging. What's the conversation that you're having? So I think, like, there's just a having to negotiate in a lot of ways. Like, not, I mean, like, we really were... give me one conversation, like, one specific conversation that gives you stress. Um... I don't know if any of them give me stress at this point. I think the initial conversations around like Craig if we're not going to go out for a beer anymore like like who are we as people now like what are we going to do like what like that was kind of our thing so there were lots of lots of small conversations early on about you know who were we who are we going to be now that we weren't this like beer drinking couple or like on a Saturday afternoon you know we might be running errands and go buy one of our favorite craft brew places and think like, oh, well, that's it's not going to be as fun for me to sit there and watch you drink a couple beers. And, you know, I think he didn't also want to be like, you know, it was uncomfortable for him just like drinking beer in front of me knowing I can't and really want to. So you had to change. You had to evolve. Yeah. we. I mean, we really did. And look at like, you know, and explore wine a little bit and see if, if that was as fun, if that filled that hole and really make us look at like, is it actually about the beer drinking or was this just like a nice way to get out, get out of the house and kind of have a date? You know, we had to look at all those things and negotiate every single little piece of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to your point about dairy, like going into a restaurant, every time you order at a restaurant, it's a negotiation when you have any sort of food allergy and sensitivity or intolerance. Yeah. My brilliant business partner, Lisa Gates, who co-founded She Negotiates six years ago, she has a beautiful framework for teaching negotiation to women, and it's called the five finds. And the first find is first, you have to find yourself. And that's an ongoing journey. I'm still finding myself every single day, every single moment. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> We're getting into the woo-woo waters, but it's very important because your story highlights, it's you know, we are constantly reinventing, rediscovering ourselves. And so, like you said, yeah, it's a constant negotiation. It's like, who am I? Who are you? How are we going to agree to be together? How are we, how are we going to agree to spend time together? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what I love about your story is that you, you know, maybe it's a big leap 
but there is a parallel, a very clear parallel to your story and all my clients who want to negotiate their salary, <laughs> which is that you had to gather all this data. Yes. And, you know, you and I both being uh, from finance, we, we totally understand. And we love quantify. data. <laughs> we love data. We love spreadsheets. We love numbers. And, and the number, you said you were... With gluten, you were 30% functional. And then without gluten, you were 70% functional. It made a huge impact in your life. Absolutely. I mean, just not having to wear a turtleneck sweater in June and look like, you know, grandma that has yeah. like the winter coat on in the summer, you know. And, and what you did was you turned your complaint into an ask. And it was honest. It was transparent. It was vulnerable. That's one of the bravest scariest ask that any woman can make, especially in the workplace. Yes. Do you think money is different? I know we talked about gluten, we've talked about dairy. <laughs> do you think there's a <laughs> do you think there's a fundamental difference though when it comes to money? Or is it the because it's the workplace or both? You know, I've been pondering this question this morning before this call. Is it true that women don't like to negotiate for more money? And anecdotally, when I consider the people in my network, the people, the women, very bodacious, moxilicious women that I know, they yes, are you do. fearless <laughs> when it comes to asking for money. There's you, there's all these, I mean, all these women that I know. The research says that women don't ask, but that research came out about a decade ago. And every day there are universities turning out one paper or another about women are this, women are that, women are negotiating, blah, 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 blah. Women have to wear lipstick, women have to twist their bodies and do jumping jacks and, you know. <laughs> it's like we have to, if you take all the research and take it literally, we have to contort our bodies in such a way that it's so unnatural to us. So I went off on a tangent there, but, you know, to answer your question, <laughs> again, I, I can only speak for myself, really. And what I've experienced in my life is that it was the stories about money that I heard growing up. It was the stories about money that I believed that really held me back from negotiating for more when I was younger. But also, I think critically, I didn't know that I could negotiate for more money. I didn't know how. And I didn't know to ask for help. And I think that is the real reason why I didn't negotiate for more money. When did you figure that out? Because I know, and something I am, I'm, I'm probably ashamed of it. And I, I try to let shame go where I can. But mm -hmm. I remember finding out. So when I started at PwC, I remember finding out a few years later that one of my good friends, a guy, was he started at about $8,000 a year more than I did. Mm-hmm. Because I was, I grew up in a small town. I was the first one to go to college. And I, I didn't know you could negotiate. I thought like 
I I, should, nobody told you. Yeah, nobody I thought I you. should be. And I, I mean, I went to UMass. It, it wasn't like I went to some small school that didn't cover these things. But I never knew, like, and and maybe it's how it's positioned when some of these firms come onto campus and you get an internship and those kind of things. Like, you're supposed to feel, like, gratitude, you know, that you're going into your senior year and already have a job locked down and don't have to worry about it and can just focus on studying and, and enjoying your last year in school. So maybe it's it's partly culturally that, or it was in my case, but, like, at no point did any professor or advisor or teacher tell me, like, yeah, so what they offer you, you can actually ask for more in that moment. Mm-hmm. So I had no clue. When did you figure it out? I figured it out pretty late. I figured, I think I figured it out about five years ago, around the time that I first met you. I was having cocktails with some of my girlfriends, and per usual, one of them was complaining about her boyfriend, the other about her job. And she's like, oh, I'm underpaid. I feel undervalued. Ugh, it's so much work to go find another job. Ugh, woe is me. And this other woman, who, by the way, is a fabulous tech CEO, of course, she turns to her and she says, you know, if you're good, you can always ask for more. And light bulb went off. And light bulb went off. And I'm like, OMG, that is so true. (laughs) We don't have to sit and feel sorry for ourselves and complain. We can actually do something about it. We could take ownership of our career. We can take ownership of our work and ask for what we desire. And there is a good way. There is a productive way to ask, and there are unproductive ways to ask. And she explained it. She said, you don't want to go in there and make it all about you. You don't want to go in there and say, I've been in this company for five years, and I'm getting married next week, and I have all these bills piling up. Can I get a raise? That's me, me, me approach, right? Right. But if you take a we approach, when you think about the company's perspective, your employer's perspective. So empathy, if you empathize with the people that you work with and the employer who pays your salary and say, I understand your pain point. I understand how we have problems and I have suggestions on how I can solve them. Or you point to ways how you have solved their problems, how you have brought value and add it to the bottom line, then you can make a really strong case for the salary that you deserve. So that was, that was really uh, eye-opening. And, you know, maybe I, I did read in Women Don't Ask that men do get more coaching and mentoring where they're encouraged to be competitive, to be aggressive, to assert their needs. And so, you know, they've gotten this sort of coaching throughout their uh, lives, from their youth to adulthood. Whereas for girls and women, we're taught to be nice. We're taught to take care of other people. We're taught to put the needs of other people ahead of ours. And so it, it feels foreign. It feels illegal 
That's a great way to put it. Yeah, it feels illegal to say, I have done all this great work for you. And if you want more of that, you can pay me X. Nice. I think I was answering the question about why is it that women are afraid to ask for more money? Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely think it's something that uh, it's a bit of what's the right word here? I don't know. The ways that we're raised, the way, yes. the way that society has taught us to be good, we have to unlearn as grown women. Yes. And thankfully, there are women out in the world like you and Lisa who are doing this work and getting this message out there and teaching women. Because I I think, you know, like I see with coaching clients, there's people come to the idea. It has to percolate for a little bit. They need to kind of contemplate it. Like, is this too scary and radical of a change? And so, like, just you being out there planting the seed in people's minds saying, hey, women, you can negotiate. Like, that is so powerful and is so huge. And I... I'm I'm so excited that we met and then that we realized we had this like shared love of these normally scary topics to a lot of other people and that you've taken negotiation and just run with it. And and the thing that I like about your style is you're able to distill lots of research and make it very clear cut. Like here are five ways to do this. Here's how, here are the points that you need to hit in a conversation about negotiation. Here's, it needs to include empathy. Like you are incredibly tactical about it, which I just adore because there's speaking about negotiation and then there's actually doing it. And and I love when you make people squirm and actually practice it and sometimes in front of you. So yeah, yeah. I, and we do improv. Yeah. A lot of fun. Yes. And Jamie, something that people listening may not know about you is that you're also a Toastmasters award-winning public speaker. Like, I know you talked about, like, leading workshops and teachers, but, like, this is something, like, you're good at and competitive at. What role has public speaking played for you? It has played a huge role in my life. And looking back to, again, five years ago when we first met, <laughs> I realized I've, you know, I'm analytical, but I've always been fascinated by how people communicate or fail to communicate. And yes. mostly that's me. I'm like, how can I be a better communicator? Right. Or how can we be heard? Like there's the words coming out of heard? our mouth, but are they actually landing in the way that we intend on other people? Exactly, because that's, that's key. That's so crucial for negotiating and getting what you want. Yes. So about three years ago, I gave a workshop. I gave a small workshop. I was trying out some new material, but I was just wracked with so much anxiety, so much fear. And I really failed to tell my own stories in a compelling way. And when you fail to tell your stories in a compelling way, your audience sort of gets turned off. Because you're just another talking head. Yes. People want to hear about you. People want to connect with you. The audience really loves you in that sense. And that's what I learned from Toastmasters. 
I've been a member for two years now at New York Toastmasters here. And this year I had the privilege of serving as a board member. And it's, it's a gift that continues to give. Um, every time I attend a meeting and get to do public speaking, I get to improve and practice. And to touch on what you said earlier, that's something that I, hands-on learning, practicing, <laughs> learning by doing, that's really core to who I am and what I do. And Jamie, I'm shocked to hear that you had the level of anxiety that you describe because from the outside, looking at you do your thing, I see you negotiate. I see you speak publicly. I see you network like a pro. Like you seem to exhibit no fear in picking up the phone and calling someone you don't know and making something happen. So I see you as this woman who never seems to break a sweat. Like, do you still have that fear or, or what does your relationship with fear look like? I just want to say when you said that, I had to hold myself back from just guffawing. Like, so like what? <laughs> you so really hilarious. always present as so cool and collected. Like your hands are never fluttering weird. Like I have to keep, like I'm a pretty kinetic person anyways. Like I move around a lot. But I mean, when I am public speaking, I have to like really try to plant myself. And it's a it's a great effort because like my hands just want to flutter when I'm nervous and I, I want to wiggle around. And like, I never see you do that. Like you never break a sweat. <laughs> you just haven't seen me when I do. But to answer your question, first, it's practice. Like I tell all my clients, practice. You got to practice, prepare be persistent. That's how you get better at anything. That's how you get better at negotiating for yourself. That's how you get better at public speaking. That's how you get better at networking. It just becomes muscle memory. And I've been doing uh, public speaking and teaching negotiation for three years now. I still feel like there's so much more to learn, though. And I grapple with fear every single day, every single day. It's something, it, it, fear is like my friend. I, I sit with it, I wrestle with it, <laughs> I play with it. It's never going to leave my side. And that's okay. How do you work with it? Like when you're about to negotiate something on behalf of yourself, like your own rates or an, your own project, or you're getting ready for a public speaking event, what really helps you take the pressure down? When I'm negotiating... If I'm afraid to negotiate, which it is some, which is a, an emotion I feel, of course I do because I'm only human, I have to revisit one of my core principles, which is invite and embrace no. People often say, what's the worst thing that can happen to you if you take that risk? And it's that they might say, no, no, I don't want to drink wine tonight. No, I don't want to give you something other than this gluten-soaked pasta. <laughs> I don't know if you can soak pasta in gluten, but <laughs> no, I don't want to give you that raise. No, I don't want to work with you. No, I don't want to come to your workshop. Okay. It's okay. When you invite and embrace no, it means that you're simply respecting the other side's autonomy for their right to make that decision for themselves. And you have that right as well. Everyone has autonomy. 
And when I invite embrace no, and I say, okay, the worst thing that can happen is no, and I'm okay with it. That's when I know that I'm ready to make that brave ask. And recognizing that when you hear a no, that might not be the final answer. And if it is, you'll live to tell about it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes, actually most times, when you hear no, that's when the real negotiation starts. That's when, that's when you open up the conversation to inquiry. That's when you respond with open-ended questions. That's when you find out, is it simply no forever? Or is it no as in not now? And oftentimes it is just no, not now. Come back later. Try again later. And that's where the real information lies, right? Like I think in the startup world, everyone talks about, you know, learn from your failures and things like that. But a no can be really powerful. I totally agree with your point about like it's sort of where the conversation begins because then you know their position. You know, like when you go into a conversation, you may have applied empathy to the situation and you've tried to look at it from their perspective, you know, look at the situation from their perspective and try to understand, like, what are their pain points? What are the things that they really need? You can only go so far, though, being a separate person. So, like, when you hear a no, then it's it's sort of like the line in the stand you're starting from. Like, oh, okay, may I ask why? Exactly, exactly. And you would hope you're negotiating with someone who you know, is not a completely unreasonable, closed-off person and that they can articulate, you know, why. Unlike my mom, mom, I love you, but the will see growing up was, you know, like was always like the deferred no and never came with a reason. <laughs> like, mom, can I can I sleep over so-and-so's house? We'll see. Which, you know, translated to I'll tell you no later, but I just don't want to hear it for four days. And then, you know, well, why? Because. <laughs> because I said so. So you you know, you hope that you're dealing with another adult who's willing to communicate with you openly. Yes, and you make an excellent point. No is opportunity. It's actually a gift. Because like you said, that's when you can open up to more information. You can find you can clearly see where the line in the sand is. Whereas if people tell you something other than no, People give you a counterfeit yes. Uh, you know, take for example, people invite you to their birthday party on Facebook event, and you're like, sure, I'll go. But you're like, nah. <laughs> In reality, you're like, nah. Or like the last minute, you send them a message and say, sorry, I'm not feeling well. How often does that happen? Like every single time, right? <laughs> That's a counterfeit yes. And that, that happens all the time, not just in Facebook, but in, in our lives in our professional engagements, people say yes just to get you off their backs because they don't want to give you an honest answer. And then there is the evasion, right? Like the example that you gave with your mother. She just doesn't want to tell you no because then she knows once you're told no, then that's when the questions come. Why not? Yes. So if I can't go to Sally's house tonight, when can I go? As anyone listening, you know, a handful of episodes in, any of my clients listening, friends listening, you know this about me. Like, I am relentless with the questions. There is no, like, I. it's sort of like when people talk about reaching the outer limits of the internet, like that there's some, you know, like 
wall that you'll hit. There is no wall for me in terms of asking questions. I am insatiably curious. So yeah, I think my mom realized that really early on. It was like, oh, this kid's never going to stop. <laughs> Which makes you a very masterful negotiator. <laughs> and also a pain in the ass. It depends it's on the not, perspective. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just want to make a really important point about that because people think negotiation is about putting up a fight. People think negotiation is about manipulation. It's about confrontation, making demands. And it's not that. It's about engaging in a conversation. When you're engaged in a conversation, when you're really curious, you ask a lot of questions. And that's how you find out about the other side's position. That's how you find out about the other side's underlying interest, right? Underlying interest is just another fancy word for exactly why they're saying what they want. Got it. And that's the most important thing. And I'm sure this is something that you had to do over and over again in your conversations with your husband. It's like, why are we causing suffering with these decisions? Yes. When the most important thing is that you and I are happy together. Yes. That's a very vulnerable, that's a very brave conversation that you needed to have over and over again. Why, thank you for noticing. You're welcome. Thank you for sharing that. It's funny. I love this interview. We've like sort of switched roles. I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I'm getting interviewed too. This is, this is a trip. I love it. Jamie, I reached out to the interwebs when I said I was going to be, when I was prepping questions earlier this week and thinking about our interview today. And I asked if anyone had questions. And one of our mutual friends who is so fabulous reached out with a real great question kind of piggybacking off like you're negotiating, you're speaking, you're doing all of these things. What tools and systems help you keep the train on the tracks and and keep accomplishing everything that you do? The best tool that I have are my ears. I try to listen as carefully and as attentively as I possibly can. And it's a challenge. Your mind immediately, you know, when you say you got to listen, you got to your mind wants, no, I want to go and check out social media. No, I want to go write emails. <laughs> no, I want to fidget. <laughs> Listen, it's, it's a very important tool, especially for a negotiator. FBI hostage negotiators have professional listeners. When there is a case, when there's somebody who's been taken hostage, they put bodies to just listen. That's how important listening is in a negotiation. So I have to say my ears, first and foremost. And maybe in your question, you you were thinking about like technology tools. No, no. I think processes, systems, habits. Uh, Okay. Well, in in terms of habits, uh, I've started to meditate first thing in the morning, and that's making a huge impact on my productivity, my mindfulness, clarity. I highly recommend meditation. Ditto. I, I Everything you just said, I completely agree. And it's something that anyone can do. Yes. It's not for fantastic monastics living in some Himalayan mountaintop. It really is. You set a timer for 20 minutes and you sit and you focus on your breath or you focus on a visualization. It need not be as complicated as I think people make it. 
Yeah, I, I think yep. there are a lot of bells and whistles. Like you can start doing meta meditation and and start going through different flavors or different visualizations. But at the end of the day, it's can you just sit still? Can you breathe? Can you slow down? And can you focus on that breath? And gently, Absolutely. just kind of returning to it, right? I love to make a plug about the connection between meditation, mindfulness, and negotiation prowess, which is that the biggest pitfall any negotiator can make or fall into is that you make assumptions or your ah. judgment is clouded by your biases. And biases, that's something that we all have. We all have perceptions. We all have misperceptions. It's just how the mind works. It's something that, it's like fear, we have to just embrace and work with, but not be subjugated by. So when you meditate, you, you try to be still and be present and not succumb to the chatter in your head. And that's, that's a really important skill, uh, important practice that can help you negotiate with clarity. That's a great bridge. I'm so glad you brought that up. And you know that point about like watching that chatter and watching for those assumptions is so key. I, I, mm -hmm. I think negotiation and really just life in general, like every person that we meet, we're kind of making up a story of who they are. Every situation we're in, we're kind of making up a story of what that situation is. And if we can differentiate between like, and just notice what that is like, oh, look at the story I'm telling myself about that. We can really be rooted in what's actually happening in the moment. Yeah. Touching back on something I said earlier, I, I felt that for me, I had all these stories that I had absorbed and believed about money, about, about lack, about there not ever being enough money. So help me, God, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that has an impact. If you're always negotiating from a place of lack, of scarcity, of fear, how are you going to become abundant? How are you going to have, how, how, you, how will you be able to see and realize, see the vision of abundance, see the re vision of true win-win solutions and be able to articulate it, ask for it and get it? right? The stories, we really do need to sit down and examine them. That's the juicy part of the work that I do. Helping people see clearly these stories that hold them back and maybe not get free from them, but be able to see themselves and their negotiation situation in better clarity. Yes, yes. And and what the stories represent, I mean, I find in my work all the time, it blows my mind and it it's the reason I love the work that I do because the thing that is the obstacle is never usually the obstacle. And so when you start mm -hmm. unpacking the stories, it's not, you know, for example, I had a client talk to me about like snacking at night. Mm. You know, wasn't really snacking on bad stuff, but snacking at night a lot. And you know, when we have an hour to unpack and I can ask a bajillion questions, what we came to realize is that it was really connected to, you know, a relationship with a family member. And like the snacking hmm. came when they were in the same room and like not talking to each other. So it was like something to fill the space. 
instead of communicating with each other. And so it's really important like to be able to dive into those things and really and I think that's, you know, to your original point about meditation, like really being able to examine what our thoughts are. And like when I'm working with clients, they have someone on the outside firing questions, but we can do that for ourselves. There's lots of days where I'm unpacking my own stories and it sounds like you have too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and especially around money. I mean, for like, for like I was saying earlier in the in our chat, that was something I really had to unpack. Like how come when my old firm used to bill me out at like, I don't know, three or $400 an hour. And now when I'm, you know, getting paid $80 for a Pilates session, like, why do I feel like 10 times weirder accepting the, the $80 than when it, I used to just get billed out for this other rate? And that was something that I really had to kind of journal about, meditate on. Like, what is this about? Where does this go back to? What did you find out? I mean, I think it was a lot of things. I think um, we learn from our parents, and my parents both had different views on, like, common ground in terms of saving, but, like, you know, like, the daily spending on little things was different. And I think, you know, I definitely absorbed, like, some of some of dad, some of mom. Then you look at, like, you know, I think there were some stories around just peer groups even, you know, how friends spent money. Or what money represents. Like, I mean, I think, you know, whether you're, what kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes you were wearing, you know, like, I I think even from such a young age, I mean, probably junior high, middle school, you start to see the haves and the have nots and where you fit in and what that represents. And you start, so you sort of absorb it kind of collectively from everyone around you. And then it kind of becomes its own thing in you. And Mm. When you hit and those, it's a projection. Yeah, it, money it's a projection. Money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's not really. When you think about it, it's just it's not any of those things that we make it to be. It's it's not really a status marker unless you make it to be that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then you know, just also realizing, and, and I think when you take on owning your own business. And you take on having to discuss your own rates and negotiate those yourself. You have to be confident. You know, like you're saying, like, there's a difference between saying, like, you know, my rate is $195 an hour versus my rate's $195 an hour. Mm-hmm. And that comes with, you know, there's a different energy from both of those places. It's not just a tonal thing. It's really just being able to own that. And I, I, th- I think your assessment of like meditation and looking at our own stuff and introspection being related to all of that is, is really important for people to hear. So thank you. Yeah, <laughs> You're most welcome. This is a topic that's really fascinating uh, to me as well, because I, I have very similar, if not the same struggles. I grew up in a single mother I, my mom was an immigrant. She speaks English just like, uh, what's her name, Margaret Cho's mother. Or, <laughs> or the English that Margaret Cho imitates. Yes, yes. Poor Margaret <laughs> Cho's mother some English. days. Yeah. But my mom sounds exactly like that. But she raised three daughters in America by herself. She sent all of us, she put all of us through college. She ran her own business. It's like, how did you do it? And it was a struggle. It was a, it was a really 
tough struggle. And we didn't have a lot of nice things growing up. But at the same time, my mom, she had this like iron fast conviction that I was going to be a financial success. And so when I think about that, it like, I feel like a failure. Or, but then it's like, is that really your goal, right? I mean, like, that's the kind of soul searching I had to do. And it sounds like you're doing as well. Like, yeah, that was, that was my mom's goal. (laughs) Right? Exactly. Exactly. That's her. That's what she wants for her. But I have to do what is right for me. And also, yes. And and I also, what does that money mean? Like you you taught, you touched on that. And, And for me, having money means freedom. Having money means autonomy. And that's what I've always wanted. And I have it now. I do make less money than I used to make when I worked at a startup, but I have what I wanted. And I also don't have to work seven days a week like my parents did. And so my life is way, way better. Yes, thanks to their sacrifice. But, you know, in my own terms, I am a success. Yes. And I I think that's an important question. And it's one that that I come back to a lot with people, you know, whether it be on the podcast, whether it be clients, whether it be friends, is just looking at the metrics we define for ourselves around success. I mean, similar to you, I'm making way less than I make in finance, but I realized what I need when my battery isn't being depleted and I don't have bosses sexual harassing me or just screaming at you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not traveling 98% of my life. I'm, you know, not missing everyone's birthdays and weddings and parties and things like that because I'm, you know, stuck in a hotel room or a conference room somewhere. Like, I think... Misery. Yeah, yeah. Misery. I, I don't cry on Sunday nights. Um <laughs> You know, I I just, even as the holidays were winding down, seeing family members and talking to friends and hearing about like, oh God, I've got to go to work again on Tuesday and thinking to myself, like, I remember what that feels like, like the pain in your stomach, the chest constriction that go with that, but I don't feel that way anymore. Like I was like, yeah. I can't like... I'm prepping for an interview with Jamie. Like I'm, you know, everything that I had to work on, I was like, yeah, that I like, I can't wait to do it. I mean, my problem sometimes is, oh, I'll just, I'll just work on one more thing. Like this thing seems really fun. I'm going to, I'm going to do that to end my day. And then, you know, it's seven thirty, eight o'clock at night. And I'm like, where did mm-hmm. two hours go? <laughs> um, I have to manage myself and use timers and things like that to keep myself on track. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's really important to recognize like what what success is. And for some people, it is financial. Like they want to have a million dollars in the bank and that's going to make them feel powerful or or whatever emotions it brings up for them, whatever feelings it brings up for them. But I think brilliant assessment and sort of you know, recognizing like what you needed and what that looked like financially and that you know, more or less isn't probably going to shift your sense of happiness and contentment and joy in in your existence now right it's the first find you have to find yourself (laughs) which is which is to say that negotiating for yourself your own success defined in your own terms 
It is. I, I feel it is the ultimate act of self-care. Nice. Nice. I dig it. You know my love of self-care. Yeah. That's why your clients have to negotiate. My clients have to negotiate. You have to negotiate. I have. Yeah, that's why it's important. It is. It is. And I'm, I'm so psyched that you've been here to talk about this and share this. Like, there are so many points that I've been scribbling down and I want to know more about that and, and think about that a different way. So I, I appreciate that. And I also appreciate that you are a busy woman and want to make sure that we keep you on track for the rest of your day. And I have the champagne questions for you. And these are, these are questions I love to ask every guest. And so what's your favorite tool, app, gadget, or resource? Mm, so many. Aside from the ears, I recently started using Calendly to manage my calendar. And it's saving me a lot of time. The back and forth, you know, when's a good time for you? What's a good time for me? Instead, you just send them a link. People can book a time directly on your calendar. They don't see any of the details, of course. Nice. Yes, because that the negotiation of just choosing a time to do anything can be a huge time suck. So that sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. How do you organize and manage your tasks on a day-to-day basis? I use my Google Calendar First thing in the morning, I look at it, I say, what's coming up? And then I have to use pen and paper and literally map, like list hour by hour, what am I going to do? And I try to make it all fit on one page and just stick to what's on that page. Wow, that's impressive. And that's, that's a daily process for you or a weekly process? It's a daily process. It's something that I took away from reading Deep Work. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'll post a link to the book. Yeah, Yeah. I can Google it. Not a big deal. And what is your most impactful habit? I know you've talked about listening. Any others that you want to mention? Meditation. And meditation. I guess breathing. Good point. We forget that we're doing that, right? (laughs) Yes. How do you check in with it? You you said, oh, you seem so fearless. I, I went through therapy to deal with my chronic anxiety and I kept asking my therapist like how do I what, what, what can you recommend she just said keep breathing keep doing deep breathing <laughs> what so, she meant to say was mindful breathing got it so not like panting but like <laughs> but really just like slowing it down and like focusing again exactly focusing on your in-breath focusing on your out-breath connecting with your presence here and now so is that something do you have to remind yourself or is that like for someone listening who is like, well, that's great. Like Jamie said, deep breathing has really helped her. But like, what does that look like? Like when you started integrating it? Uh, it looked silly when I first in- started integrating it because I didn't really know how to breathe deeply into my lungs. I was sort of like, <sighs> like this, like panting out loud, like or sighing <sighs> like that. <laughs> and that's not the right way. The right way is to really breathe into your lungs. And I learned this from my friends at Vital Voice Training. There are two dynamic women who teach women how to speak up for themselves. And when you breathe into your lungs, your lung capacity expands from your back. Yes. So you'll see an expansion in your back. 
Yes. That's what, that's how you really breathe into your lungs. Yes. And I mean, this is where I could geek out for like 45 more minutes and talk about like what that's doing. It's moving lymph. It's stimulating your parasympathetic nervous system. Like if you go into the research, it, I think people sometimes are like, that can't work. It's just too simple. But like what it actually physiologically changes in the body is quite powerful. And it, it sounds like you've experienced that. Yep. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Any more? Yeah, I got a few more. Okay. What's the most inspiring or useful book you've ever read? I've read so many good books. I I, I just keep buying. I just hoard books. I, I love them to death. I love Never Split the Difference, which is a book written by a former FBI hostage negotiator. I've read it. I've recommended it to my clients. And what I love is that the, the irony, you think, oh, FBI, hostage, negotiators, they're doing something really macho. They're doing something really hard. No, what they're doing is they're being kind. They're listening. They're being empathetic. They're showing respect to somebody who is holding a gun to a hostage's head. <laughs> and there is a direct quote from this book that I love. Chris Voss says that, when you're nice, you can actually push harder. And, you know, this, may, this might get me into some dicey waters because I know there are women out there who think being nice is, is just the fastest way to become a doormat. Right, it's, it's being nice with a spine. It's being nice with self-compassion. It's being nice with respect, not uh, with self-hate. And I think you said nice and you're quoting the word nice but i think for me it landed on me as kind yes like mm -hmm. and n nice with a spine i love that mm -hmm. <laughs> we should get t-shirts made <laughs> we can get a nice little spine on the back and it'll just say nice on the front <laughs> i like that and jamie when you need inspiration where or to what do you go I'm an introvert, born one, will always be one. So when I need inspiration, when I need to rejuvenate, I go to myself. I need to sit down in a quiet place. I need to write things down. I need to write out my thoughts. I need to reconnect. Got it. These next few questions are going to be a little bit different, but I know they're probably important questions and things you think about as well. How would you define being a modern woman? This is one of the questions I answered on an interview post I did for you yes. last year. And same as before, it's a privilege and it's a delight. It can also be a conundrum if you want to succeed and you, you know, if you want to compare yourself to society's standards, because there is research showing that there's still a gender wage gap, there's a leadership gap. Uh, we have somebody who is very antagonistic to women who's going to be president of the United States of America and his advisors and uh, people that he 
put into positions of power are going to do things that are not good for women. And when it's not good for women, it's not good for humanity. So it's a challenge. It's a privilege. It's a delight. And it's a challenge. And we have to put up a fight. And it's so important, like, I've been waiting to ask you this question again, because I feel like so much has changed Mm -hmm. since the last time I asked you to think about this question. And what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? Being kind to themselves and helping other women succeed. Brilliant. And conversely, what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? What other people think. <laughs> Easier said than done, right? Yep. But when, it, when you say modern women, of course, it, I'm really talking about me. Because I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I can't speak for all modern women. I have to speak for myself as a modern woman. But I think you are not alone. I think, you know, as much of a ball buster as I can be some days, like there are definitely moments where you hear the the negative more than the positive, right? Like 99 people can tell you like something you're working on is great. And the one person who just, you know, might be some troll that you don't even know, like really can puncture your day. And mm-hmm. it's, it's easier said than done. What has helped you? What have you found helps you have thicker skin or not let people get under your skin? I'm very sensitive. <laughs> I do take things very seriously. What has helped me is perspective, and that's not an easy thing because it takes time, it takes effort, it takes uh, focus, and focus is always something I'm working on. What has helped me recently is I started to listen to Byron Katie. Do you know who Byron Katie is? Yes, the work, right? Yes, and I do the work. And for those of you who don't know, it's, it's a self-inquiry process. It's very simple. It's just four questions. Whatever you're upset about. I am angry because so-and-so said that I look like a monkey. You ask yourself four questions. Is it true? Can you absolutely know that it's true? Who, how do you react in the world when you believe this thought? And who would you be without the thought? And what she shows through this very simple, elegant, beautiful process is that it's, it's attaching ourselves to these thoughts that really causes suffering. So we don't have to believe thoughts that cause us stress. Probably the way I'm describing it sounds a little flippant, and it's like people are like, what? <laughs> is she crazy? But it's, it's phenomenal. No, uh, I I think tools don't have to be complicated. And I think the one you're talking about is not. And I recommend that to clients sometimes when they're struggling with this kind of like, just really attaching to like a negative thought or a negative belief. And it's, it's really ingrained. Because it's a great way to start challenging that belief. And even just the the first two questions, I mean, they're fundamentally like, is this true? And then, yeah. you know, when I'm asking myself, my tone is always like, is this, come on, is this true? Yeah. Is this really, really true? And like, usually right. by the time I get to the second question, I'm, I'm sort of laughing at myself. Like, how can I possibly say that this is really, really true? Mm-hmm. I think at the crux of that is believing in this image 
in your imagination in a horrible future that you have imagined. And I think so many of us uh, can re relate to the horrible future that we imagine when we see the news about so-and-so going into the White House. And it, it, there's so much fear, trepidation, and anger. But that what, what happens there is that we lose touch with the present moment. And in the present moment, we're okay. Yes. And... That And this is like spiritual ninja level stuff, but also kind of recognizing like everything is unfolding as it should. And like we cannot, we cannot change the situation, but we can change our reaction to it. And if yeah. we're not hemorrhaging all of our energy, freaking out about things and yeah. indulging ourselves in that way, then we can actually get real shit done. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that we become doormat. It doesn't mean that I'm going to take whatever happens and just say, oh, oh well, ho-hum. No, it means that I'm present I and you can make plans for the future. I do plan on making calls to politicians as I did uh, earlier. It means you are fully alive and present in the moment and you take action. Yes, yes, well said. And Jamie, just a couple more questions before I let you skedaddle. What do you most want Le Vital Core Salon listeners to know? You already have all the tools that you need to become a masterful negotiator. You already have it. In fact, in fact, you know, I encourage people come to my workshops, women get inspired. Some of them, they're like, oh, I'm going to go teach negotiation myself. I'm like, that's great. Steal my ideas. <laughs> Run with it. If Do it. <laughs> Do it. Because we need more women who can courageously encourage each other to speak up, to get better paid, to negotiate. We need that in the world. And this just speaks to your, again, what looks fearless on the outside, your, your fearless confidence. Like, you're just like, run with it. The more women we have out there in the world doing this work and getting other women to negotiate, the better we are all going to be. Exactly. That, Women's rights are human's rights. I believe that. Yes. Yes. And Jamie, if women want to learn more about you and your work, What's the best way for them to do that? They can go to shenegotiates.com. That's one word, shenegotiates.com. And in fact, we have a free download, a script for how to close your wage gap. Uh, there are specific scripts to use when people try to lowball you because it is unfortunately a very common thing. And you can also write me directly at Jamie, J A. M-I-E at shenegotiates.com. And Jamie, I'll have all of your information and that link and links to some of the, the resources and books we talked about. But I am so grateful that we got to sit down and have this conversation today. Every time I come away from a conversation with you, I just feel just so stoked. Like you are doing such fantastic work in the world and I'm so pleased that you took the time. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It is my great pleasure as well. I'm so happy. Awesome. We'll take care. Hey. 
Hey, this is Kara again. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoresalon.com. That's L-E, vital, V-I-T-A-L, core, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. New shows will be up on the second and fourth Wednesdays of every month. And if you've been listening and wondering what on earth it would feel like to work together on your brand new health and lifestyle strategy, let's connect. The best way to do that is to go to the website I just gave you and click contact. Or drop me an email at cara at vitalcorewellness.com. Before I bounce, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to my producer Craig Snyder and to Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone for writing and the High Dials for performing my most excellent theme song. And don't forget, everyone, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let burnout or bullshit slow you down. Mm-hmm.